Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. All right, so I guess it's about time for us to get started. Um, clearly, I'm not Brother Eads. Uh, I got an email from him Friday as I was leaving town to go do some, some testing with a client. And um, he's been under the weather. And unfortunately, what started is probably a mild cold. He was worried it might have turned into bronchitis. So he's out. The good news about Brother Eads, though, is he's perhaps the most organized teacher I have ever co-taught with. And so in the same email that he said, hey, is there any chance you'd be around and you could fill in? And I'm like, well, that's the point. I'm the backup teacher, right? Was a wonderful outline, complete with PowerPoint presentation, ready to go. So here we go. Um, so I, first of all, I'll apologize because I'm, I'm not going to do as good a job presenting this as Bill would have because it's his material. But the uh, other side of that is we'll at least be able to continue the continuity of the class and the thoughts and the way he had everything laid out we'll be able to maintain instead of having an abrupt change of um, now we're going to look at Colossians according to Tom, right? So we're going we're gonna to at least attempt to go through the same thing and then Lord willing we'll pick right back up next week. So a quick review of last week. Um, we were looking at the nature of our labor and our ministry for Christ as exemplified by Paul. And we talked about a number of different characteristics of that labor. The fact that it's supposed to be self-sacrificing. Paul gave up everything the world would have been considered for gain. I mean, if you think about it. Paul was a guy who had studied at the feet of Gamaliel. He had this powerful position. He was on the fast track to be somebody important, right? When he had his experience on the road to Damascus. And I can't think of a better example offhand of a 180 <laughs> that occurred than Paul going from persecuting Christians to defending the faith and even the things we're going to see today with the love he shows to a group of people that interestingly we're going to talk about the fact that he'd never even been there. We also talked about how our commission is from God. As a new creature in Christ, we have a new mission in life. Right? When you're of the world, you're doing things of the world, things that are defined by the world. For us, as Christians, we should have different goals. We should be on a different mission. If we look around and have friends or family members who aren't Christians and we find ourselves striving for the exact same things, one of us has our priorities wrong, and odds are it's us, if we're looking at things in the same way. Our purpose is to make known the riches and the hope in the glory of Christ. And we're going to talk about riches quite a bit today, the passages we're going to be looking at. We are to both warn of sin and condemnation and teach of salvation. That's another thing. We're going to talk about some of that duality a little bit more today. Righteousness and the hope of heaven. The goal of our teaching is to bring every person first to Christ and then to spiritual maturity. And we're going to talk about how that's a, that's a process. There's multiple pieces to that today. A lot of what we're going to talk about is going to be wisdom there's a number of things that go into that. And we also talked last week about how we need to remember and use the gifts that God has given each and every one of us because they're different and they allow us to do different things. And we all have um, different gifts and abilities 
to put to his service. All right, so let's see if I can make this work. So if I don't keep the slides up, it's my fault because Bill even has everything laid out. Button, button, button. Bill, I hope you're watching because I really do love your notes. All right. So first of all, let's go back over and let's remember what's the theme of what we're looking at here in our study in the book of Colossians. What we're really talking about when we look at all of this is the all-sufficiency or supremacy of Christ. If you recall, why was Paul writing this letter? Why is this being written? There was false teaching that was going on. He was having to deal with problems that were going on in the church in Colossae. And there was false teacher that was going on about the nature of Christ. And it was becoming a real threat. I mean, it's causing Paul actual concern. We're going to see that, his deep concern that he has based on what's happening. And the primary element of this doctrine suggested that you need to have a special knowledge or wisdom to be a Christian. I would say it's amazing how Glenn so um, had the perfect lesson for our class today, but we're studying the New Testament. This stuff fits together. That's going to be the case more often than it's not. Especially if you're sitting there like I was listening to the lesson, knowing what we're going to be talking about this morning, you hear it even more, right? Um, But it's interesting, the examples, because Glenn this morning made reference to Ellen G. White. He made reference to um, uh, the Mormon faith, these, these ideas that there's this extra knowledge that you have to have. Those aren't new problems. I mean, those are the same problems they were dealing with in Colossae. All right, so here we are. It's lesson six. Christ, the source of wisdom. So we're going to be in Colossians 2. We're going to be looking at just the first few verses, probably through about verse 7, depending on how our time does. I expect we'll probably get through all of it. So Paul's continuing his teaching and his warnings, and he now switches to the subject of wisdom. He provides a number of thoughts about the source of wisdom and admonitions about how to become wise. And again, much like what Bill has been talking about as we've been studying you know, Christology or the study of Christ, this is another example as Paul's continuing to flow through on these themes. And chapter 2 continues the discussion that was begun in chapter 1. So this is one of those cases, and I sat down, and the first thing I did when I knew I was going to be teaching this was I said, forget that, I sat down and reread Colossians. It's four chapters, you can do it, right? It's not a, a huge time commitment. You too can make it. And so I sat down and I reread it, and it's one of those cases where I'll admit, when I went from one to two, it's one of those where I'm like, some man decided to stick that divider in there, because these thoughts flow, in my opinion, from one to the other very nicely. So Paul was dealing with false teaching, false teaching about Christ, but I hope you also recognize how blessed we are to have such deep, uh, such depth of understanding provided to us about our Savior, because we have not just the benefits that Paul's going to tell the people in, you know, this letter being written to these folks in Colossians about the things they already had. He's telling them, hey, you already have what you need. We have the benefit of what they had and this letter as well to help reinforce that. Okay, so here we go. According to verse 1, and hopefully you've all got your Bibles open, you can follow along, because I'm not going to necessarily 
reread all the text because we've got a lot of stuff to talk about here. But interesting point that's worth us considering. Um, Paul had never been to Colossae. That's what he tells us. But simply based on what he had heard, he had developed a great concern from them. Paul was somebody who had concern for Christians everywhere. He was not someone who was only focused on those that were right there in front of him, what he could see. Even based on what he was hearing, he was worried. I think that's one because that's just the kind of guy Paul was. Paul was concerned about people everywhere. I think he also deeply understood the dangers of what they were facing. There were two pieces to that. Okay, hold on. These are advancing all as one instead of the other, so. All right. So first off, he wanted to know, he wanted them to know of his concern he had on their behalf, right? I mean, that's expressly what he's telling them. I want you to know. Even though he'd never seen them. Um, And I think this also reflects part of the urgency um, that Paul felt about the potential effects of this false uh, doctrine. Next, he was continuing in a desire for the Colossians. The verb want, we see in here in verse 1, where he wrote, I want you to know, is used in the sense, this isn't one of those where sometimes we write a letter, we might write it from the standpoint of, hey, I wanted to let you know that such and such happened, right? It occurred to me before that I should probably let you know about this. The idea here is it's a continuing want. This is something that's going on um, now, not just a thought he had in the past. He's not writing this letter to say, hey, just the other day I was thinking about you guys and it crossed my mind I should let you know about this. This is, the, this is, this is a, a continuing idea of, hey, I'm worried about this. I have concern about this. This isn't something fleeting. This is an ongoing concern. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul provides... Um, a very familiar list of all the things that he suffered on behalf of the gospel. In in verse 28 of that chapter, he mentioned the daily deep concern that weighed on him on behalf of all the churches. It's a different word here, but it's still the same idea that includes the idea of anxiety and being pulled in different directions to the point of distraction. And I thought it was interesting when I was reading the notes that Bill used the word here to describe this as anxiety. Hmm? 28. 28. 2 Colossians 11. And I thought it was interesting that he used the word here of anxiety. Because that's one of those words we hear about a lot, right? We live in a, a society that anxiety is a problem. It's something we hear about a lot. And the concept I always hear attached to the idea of anxiety is it means you're worried or having trouble now because you're living in the future. You're not dealing with what's happening right now. And I think that's correct because I think what Paul's feeling here is probably best described as anxiety because he can see where what's happening here is going to take them. They may not be there now, but he can see where this false doctrine is going to lead them in the future. So Paul, as an evangelist, had a continuing intense concern for uplifting spirituality uh, spiritually, all the churches, both that he had fo- helped found, and that same concern was there for the Colossian church, even though he'd never been there. And this is something I think we can understand. Um, our elders, our ministers, have an ongoing concern for each member at West Huntsville, and even 
beyond that, right? We have concerns about things that are going on in Kharkov, about things that are going on in um, South America, places that we may not have ever even been, we still have concern for those who are there. The conjunction four in Colossians 2.1 is essentially saying, by way of explaining, kind of the way this starts out, he jumps right in there with four, because I strive and struggle for you, as part of that struggle, I continue to teach and warn, is really the idea here in, in verse one of chapter two. I think that most of us know um, missionaries in the church who continue to exhibit the same concern for places they've worked even though they're not there anymore. I mean, this, this feeling that Paul had is not unique and it's completely understandable. In fact, I mean, we have people like that even here. I mean, we have people that, that have actually been to Kharkov. And I can assure you they have an appreciation and a concern for what's going on there at a level that while I may be concerned about the Christians there, I'm not sure I can could even pretend to muster in the same way. I think anyone who's ever worked in a foreign field um, would be like that. And it doesn't even have to be about missionary work. We notice this just in our regular lives if we just travel, right? Like I can go read an article about the unrest and what's going on with the farmers in South Africa. And I'll admit, I will see an article like that. I'm more likely to go read it and I'm concerned about it because I'd visited. I'd been there. I'd driven through fields and seen farms off there, right? And it's your mind gets drawn to those things because you develop that connection. I think one of the probably biggest detriments, I'm completely digressing from Bill's notes now, but I think one of the bigger detriments we have as Americans is we don't travel enough. And it's because we live in a huge country where I can, like I was looking at needing to go do a trip and go to a, a conference that was going to be in Vegas. I said, hey, I'll go see my sister. She's in northern Nevada. I looked at it on a map. It was going to be a seven-hour drive to get to the nearest town to where she lives, and it's an hour from the town out to the ranch where she lives. I'm like, that's eight hours, and you never leave Nevada in that whole drive. It's only about a six-and-a-half-hour drive from Edinburgh to London. Now, granted, that's still the same country, but put that in scale with the countries around it. We live in a big place. We don't travel as much. But if you travel more, all of a sudden you realize, hey, guess what? People in Australia, they're a lot like people in America. When I got to Papua New Guinea, I didn't understand the language, but guess what? They're still people. And they deal with a lot of the same things that, that we do. And you get to South Africa, I can assure you I don't speak Afrikaans. But you know what? They're still people and they live in houses and they drive cars. On the wrong side of the road, mind you, but they drive cars. So we see here this concern, even though he can't see them. And we know for a fact that especially when you have places that become mission points where you're developing those relationships where you know more people, <laughs> we see this concern being expressed by Paul. And it's, it's bothering him. He can see where this is going. It's causing him anxiety because he can see the future. He's worrying about their future. He describes this as a great struggle. Uh, New King James calls it conflict, which... I don't know about you, but if you just read verse 1, seems like an odd word choice um, when you read that, that passage. Uh, however, when you start digging into it a little bit, the idea is a great mental struggle over his concern for the churches at Colossae um, and Laodicea. Um, the word striving back in 129 refers to the hard work that Paul did on behalf of all the churches 
in Colossae and Laodicea, which is also continuing and ongoing. This word striving and the word conflict or struggle in verse 1 have the same root word and indicate Paul's intense level of concern with the Colossian brethren. All right, these words, they actually have their origin describing struggles of an athletic competition that would sometimes be used, you know, in the Greek to describe, you know, even the Olympics is what we always think of when we think of Greeks and athletics, right? That's the, that's the place where most of our brains go. Um, and, and it's a metaphor for this. He's, he's describing something that would be this intense physical battle, but in this case, it's a spiritual battle and, and, and mental suffering, his anxiety and anguish over their spiritual welfare of the Christians here. His effort, this conflict or struggle was a dedicated, ardent effort that was ongoing and continuing. Paul is showing great concern about the false teaching and the potential impact on the church. And his goal here is that their hearts might be encouraged. I mean, this was his purpose in writing and expressing his concerns was he wanted their hearts to be encouraged. So let's, let's reflect back on what Paul is trying to accomplish, right? So this makes me think of false teaching, uh, usually designated as the Colossian heresy, um, was clearly very real. And Paul seems to be doing all he can from his imprisonment to address something that he's very anxious about. Um, Colossians 1.9, he and those faithful men with him prayed for full spiritual understanding. I mean, if we look at what's leading up to this point where he's talking about this, they're praying that they may have full spiritual understanding and that they need to understand the nature of the threat and how to counteract this false teaching. He says, I want you to know. Even though they had never seen him, He continually wanted them to know. His anxious concern was not something passing here, right? So the word wisdom, which is a lot of what we're going to talk about here in these first few verses, because that's that's their problem, right? There's this false teaching, there's people, there's secret knowledge that you need to know. So a lot of this is people are, you know, they're coming in in this idea of, oh, well, to truly know and to truly be wise, to truly understand, they're acting like there's something else you have to have that you have to have an LNG white, that you have to have some gold tablets that mysteriously no one else can see and will never produce. And, you know, that, that there's these other things that have to there. So there's a lot tied in. And it's interesting that this ties in a lot with things that um, by the first century are already deeply ingrained in Greek culture, <laughs> um, if you think about it. Um, but the word wisdom occurs six times in Colossians, knowledge four times, and understanding twice. Just to remind us, this false doctrine said that you had to have special knowledge to be a Christian. Now, obviously, the Holy Spirit saw the need to pay considerable attention to their thinking on the subject of knowledge. All right, so Paul has this intense level of conflict that they attain a full understanding and we've, we've already mentioned several times now this anxiety that he's feeling for them to fully understand and for them to even grasp the seriousness of, seriousness of the situation. And his purpose is that their hearts might be encouraged. 
If you think about it, it's entirely possible if you bring someone into full understanding of how dangerous the situation they face is, there's always the potential, oh, this is really bad, right? That, that could actually be a very discouraging thing to end up doing to these people. Um, but he's pointing out that his purpose here is to comfort, exhort, and encourage. Exhort is a beautiful word that we don't use enough. How many of you use exhort in everyday language? Good. You're all being very honest because nobody raised their hand. So what does exhort mean? This is one of those words that we know, we kind of think we know what it means. We get it, but we don't use it a lot, right? What does exhort mean? It has an intensity to it, right? I'll, I'll spare you the definition. I was going to actually read to you the, look, dictionary.com says this, says this. Um, but it has this idea of greatly encourage, right? There's encouraging and then there's exhorting. That means you're taking it up a notch. Your motive, you're right. The volume now goes to 10, you cranked it to 11, right? This is the car stereo when you were a teenager. Maybe that was just me. And maybe not just when I was a teenager. But <laughs> there's an intensity behind it right here. And so he's, he's doing this to comfort, to exhort, to encourage. We know that Paul often used Timothy and Titus to go to congregations having problems. You know, not that long ago, Glenn did a lesson about... Uh, Tychicus. Uh, by the way, if I ever get another dog that I spend the time to train well, its name will be Tychicus because that is the most awesome name ever. And so my wife's not happy about that. And Paul is sending him here to deliver this letter, but also to address a couple major problems, right? One, there was the problem of sending Onesimus back to his master, Philemon. Um, don't get me wrong, that was a big deal. But there's a lot of in-person diplomacy that's going to have to happen here. I think it says a lot about Tychicus that, that he's the guy, Paul says, you know what, I'm sending you. Because there's the whole deal with Onesimus and Philemon. That's one thing. That's going to take some tact and some understanding. We've got to make sure this gets smoothed over and make sure we don't cause a problem between brothers and Christ. Um, but there's also all these other issues that are going on potentially um, in town with these false teachers. He's going to have to... He's clearly got a lot of confidence in him um, for him to go to Colossae in view of these problems and in view of the fact that Paul expresses such intense concern uh, for the spiritual well-being of this church. This is not a place where I would think you would want to send the quote-unquote the new guy, somebody who isn't proven, somebody who hasn't shown themselves able to handle you know, potentially difficult situations. These are some, and I quote from Bill, naughty spiritual issues, K-N-O-T-T-Y. These are things you're going to have to deal with and work around. All right. So then he provides some details. Um, He lists some reasons for encouraging the Colossian church. Uh, These are the reasons he continues to teach and warn. We saw that in 129, at the end of 1, in verse 29. And notice Paul's target is actually their hearts. He's concerned about their hearts. He's concerned about their mindset. He's looking to influence their thinking in a permanent sense. And he very candidly lets them know um, that his concern is ongoing and continuous for their, uh, for their need for this teaching and warning. So first we see this idea of being knitted together in love or unified. The motivating force for unity is love. 
The compound word for knit together means to be caused or compelled to be joined together only with Christ as the basis of love, as the compelling force, can there be unity in a congregation. This is going to be one of those issues that can very quickly devolve into something divisive that's going to tear people apart. I mean, just think about it. This is going to be one of those subjects where somebody, you're very quickly going to end up with different camps. We have everything we need. No, 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 we need this other stuff and this guy has it. Unfortunately, we've, we've all probably seen this or bits of this. I mean, this is how you get to denominationalism. You have this diverging of thoughts. They're no longer unified in love and they're starting to split apart into multiple pieces. I don't know why, probably because of the phraseology here with this knitted together with love. I don't know why, but this made me think of the, uh, the Afghans. When I was really young, we lived in Minnesota. They're long, cold winters, so you spend a lot of time stuck inside, sitting around a TV, right? So my mom would crochet. She was never a knitter, but she would crochet, and she'd make these huge, like, Afghan blankets and stuff. But this whole idea of knitted together made me think of those, because I always thought it was kind of amazing that you end up with this cool blanket, and it actually, like, has structure to it, because those things end up being, like, like, thick, which is kind of amazing that you start with this single piece of long thread that's continuous, and you end up with something else. But the downside to that is what happens if it gets damaged? Yeah, it unravels really quick. So I find that's where my brain kept going when I'm sitting here thinking about this idea of knitted together with love. Is it's the same thing. You have to address that damage or that issue quickly in that spot. And you can repair it. And you can hold it all together and you can fix it. But it takes effort and attention. Otherwise, it just continues to get worse and worse. So that I hear being, the idea being here that they're joined together and only with Christ as the basis and love as the compelling force can there be unity in a congregation. It can't, strong preaching alone won't do it. Strong leadership alone won't do it. Those are vital pieces to unity. Those are absolutely vital contributing factors. But I don't care how good of a leader you have by himself. That won't do it. The preaching also has to be with love. The leadership has to lead with love. And the members have to share and show that love. I don't know, in my mind I kept thinking of it, it's almost like love is the yarn, right? And everything gets built together out of that. His purpose was that they be encouraged unto two different results in their minds and hearts Paul uses uh, the little preposition to to indicate that the results he wanted or the goals that he had in mind for the Colossians um, that they possess. All the riches or wealth of a complete certainty in their understanding. The word all is rather inclusive. All doesn't leave a whole lot out. In fact, by definition, all leaves nothing out. And a state of complete certainty, I mean, full assurance, I mean, you can't get any more than full, and full of what? Assurance. I mean, there, there's nothing being left, um, there's no room here. This is a complete certainty that Paul's talking about. And Paul's goal for them was a level of confidence in their understanding of God and Christ 
that they were certain in their minds. In effect, he's describing a mature faith that has absolute confidence or complete certainty in all they know about Christ and the Father. The word translated understanding refers to the faculty the faculty of comprehension, intelligence, acuteness, or shrewdness. This is the same word understanding uh, that we discussed back in lesson three. It's found in verse one, uh, excuse me, chapter one, verse nine. Their understanding was the final phase of knowledge, wisdom, and then understanding. Have you ever thought about that? This one took me a minute because usually we hear wisdom is the end of that. Knowledge, wisdom, and then understanding. I'm going to be honest, Brian, I had to noodle on that one for a minute because it seemed out of order to me. But I think where I finally came to, I hate to say it, but I'm an engineer, so I ended up back at a physics example, right? There's knowledge, right? I know that F equals MA, right, Ray? (laughs) If I have wisdom, I know how that is going to play out when I start using it, right? I understand the basic principles. I have knowledge. Okay, I can see those. I see those starting to act in something. I can see it in context, and I get it right there. I say that's going to happen. When I have understanding, I start looking at something completely different, like V equals IR, and I start seeing the same ideas as F equals MA. I realize three people in the room just understood that analogy, but that's okay. There's a difference between knowing a bunch of facts There's a difference between wisdom of knowing how those facts are going to play out in a given case, in a known context, as they usually are. But when you have understanding, you know how those principles apply, even in a new context. I think a lot of the time we probably use, what I see here as a differentiation between wisdom and understanding, we probably use those to be very much the same thing. But I think if you want to get really nitpicky, there's probably a subtlety in those definitions between the two. God is the one who grants this understanding. It is God who provides all the wealth. Again, some rather um, unambiguous, all-inclusive terms, all (laughs) the wealth of knowledge, whereby one achieves an understanding with full assurance or complete certainty. It is only in Christ that this is possible. It certainly requires the commitment of each member uh, and the congregation as a whole. The second result he wants is to the knowledge, this precise and correct knowledge of God's revealed will called the mystery, both of the Father and Christ. The Colossian heresy spoke of mysterious or secret knowledge that only a select few could know. Paul is telling them, rather unambiguously, that not just a select few, but they all can be fully assured that they have the complete and full knowledge of Christ. Let that sink in, because I'm going to be honest, I grew up my entire life as a, uh, air quotes, Christian, but this was something that was a little unique. All I need is God's Word. I don't need a creed book. I don't care if that's the Methodist creed book, whatever the current version of what the Southern Baptists say, the new, new, New Testament, 
of the Mormon church or whatever revelations or writings were scribbled down by, uh, I forgot her first name, White, from uh, Seventh-day Ellen White. I have everything I need. So all that knowledge and all that assurance is there. That's not saying I'm miraculously going to have it all and it all makes sense and it's in my head. So I think we need to be careful a little bit when we're talking about this. It's there. I have to go find it and understand it. And when these other people come in, I have to go test and prove them against what I know is all there. God's mystery has been revealed. The word mystery refers to the fact that God had revealed it, but it was only known in, in shadows prior to Christ's coming, right? I mean, that's what tripped a lot of people up, was they didn't want to take things that had only been revealed in shadows or were seen in part, and that which was full was come. So how can we have the same level of correct and precise knowledge with complete certainty? I mean, Paul's saying they can have this. How, how do we get there? And we have to talk about it because Bill put discuss right on the notes. So this is your turn. How do we get there? How do we know that? You have to read, right? I mean, we talked about the sequence here. It starts with knowledge. I have to know it before I can have wisdom about it or I can have understanding. Yeah, absolutely. Congratulations. You got one of the ones. Study and prayer. You have to read. It takes study. That study is in Christ, but he's not going to miraculously put it in you. You have to do the work. But we've been promised if we do the work, we'll get there. How else? Yeah, he was bringing up the point that when you're studying Scripture, you have to realize that you're studying, you know, the the Word of God. It's objective truth. And there's parts in it that you're going to scratch your noodle on and go, that doesn't make any sense. And you need to realize that it's not because the text doesn't make any sense. You're not there yet. You need to keep studying. And when you get to the really hard parts, it means you've got to study even more. Right? Yeah, you're right. I mean, Paul does this. We see this in his stuff, and I like the way it's written down here because he talks about how he uses both positive encouragement, but at the same time, he doesn't hesitate to use um, the negative side and point out what they're doing wrong. It takes both. It's interesting that this was here. Actually, we had a, um, for both my boys, the robotic season kicked off yesterday. So before we started decomposing the new game and what they have to build a robot to do over the next two months, we actually started with a discussion because before all these high school kids got in there and started having conversations. I don't know if you've ever been around a room full of, the team's changing, but predominantly high school boys. Sometimes things go off the rail. So we had a discussion about the fact that for a control loop to stay stable, sometimes the input is positive. But without the negative inputs as well, bad things happen. So when we're studying, we see things that are sometimes that are good and encouraging, but we also see you've got to point out the stuff that's wrong too. And the same thing's true for us. If all I ever do is encourage somebody, but then when I see them something going on and I never give them the negative piece they need as well, I'm not saying be ugly about it. But if you're not willing to have that discussion, and Paul's certainly willing to have that discussion, he's willing to encourage them and tell them things that are going well, but you have to point out the other piece. That's how you get to that full knowledge and the certainty and all of it, is you have to look at both. It takes both. You need the positive and the negative. And Paul does that. In fact, that was one of the first things that um, Bill had highlighted here was Paul uses both teachings and warnings. 
You can't talk about just the good stuff. You have to talk about the ways things can go wrong as well. You have to talk about how things can go bad. Because at a minimum, if you don't, all you do is you never prepare people for when they do happen. If you never talk about the fact that becoming a Christian does not mean you're going to be protected from quote-unquote bad things never happening in your life, then what happens when people have those quote-unquote bad things happen in their life? Their faith is derailed, right? And they lose it because all they've ever seen is the one side of it. Yeah, so there's both of those. Anything else? Yeah, so the the point for those that that are watching online... The point being that the mystery here, likely given is still by Paul, right, is referring back into Ephesians with the mystery and the, and the whole idea that it's not just, Christianity was not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. And we know for a fact that was a big issue throughout this whole region where you would have teachers come in behind Paul or after Christianity was established and they would instantly start trying to bind old pieces of the old law. What better way to claim, well, you don't know fully enough. Yeah, that's great, but it turns out you still have to keep these other pieces, right? It's that you don't have the full knowledge. Absolutely. All right, bad news, Bill. I'm not going to get done. All right. So we're talking about this level of this precise knowledge, this complete knowledge. Um, Recognizing that only in Christ is this wealth of riches of understanding possible. Um, That is the worldview. If you look at all of the other um, options that are out there, uh, they're going to lead you astray. And that Christ repeatedly emphasized in his teaching particularly in his parables, the idea of the sower. Um, The wise and the foolish men. The necessity of hearing and the promise that nothing would be hidden or secret. And everything that we need to hear, we have. There is nothing that's been withheld from us. The completeness is there. We just have to wholeheartedly commit and surrender our personal will to be willing to study all that's been revealed openly, honestly, and fully. All right. So let's move into verse 3. Christ is the storehouse of our treasure. Christ is the storehouse of our treasure. So first thing I think we should notice here is that the treasures are, where are they? They're in him. Yeah. I guess I can't wait and ask and then press the button because they're all up there. All right. It's in him. So Christ is the storehouse for all riches. The interesting thing about storehouses is it also tells us that they are hidden. Hidden here meaning stored up. Again, I can't explain why my brain went here as I was looking at this and saw this, but for whatever reason, when I saw this, I started thinking of, and I know some of y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. We don't see them much in the South, but old school, real silos. I don't mean those cheap metal knockoffs today. I'm talking about the old concrete ones. Real silos, like a silo you could put silage in, not just dump some, some grain in it and feed it to the cattle later. I'm talking about a real silo. Does that silo look different when it's full than when it's empty? Nope. They look the same. So I guess you could say that 
the stuff that's in there is hidden. It's stored up. I know it seems like a weird analogy, but Christ is the thing and the, the blessings are stored in it. And it feels even weirder in my mind that I felt the need to make this connection with the thought of, I don't know if you've ever been around silage, but it's not necessarily the most pleasant treasure to smell, especially if it's been in there for a few years and gone bad. I had a bad experience as a kid having to clean one out, all right, um, when I was in high school working on a farm. But I guarantee you to that farmer trying to keep his dairy cattle fed all winter, that's treasure. That's as good as gold. So we see here this analogy that he is the storehouse. The treasures are hidden in him. You're not necessarily going to see him. You've got to go look. You look at the world's idea of Christ and you may not see the treasure and those blessings that are there. Guess what? Because you've got to go do that study. You've got to go do that, that reading. You've got to go understand what it is you're looking at before you see it. And we also see here that there are no other treasures. All treasures are stored in him, which has an interesting connotation. Because some people would look at that and go, well, how can all treasure be in Christ? There's a couple possibilities, I guess. I guess one would be that that's not true and there are treasures outside of Christ. Or that which I think is the case, there are things that we call treasure which aren't because they aren't found in Christ. I think the problem is the word treasure, right? Thanks to the Spanish from about the late 1400s through the, what, probably late 1700s, we hear the word treasure and we think one thing. Pirates, South American gold. That's not treasure. That's metal. How do I know? Because treasure is found in Christ. And when I go to Christ, the treasure I'm looking for sure ain't gold. It's more valuable. And we're talking about real treasure, treasures of knowledge and wisdom. And these treasures are true treasures. It's incorruptible, undefiled, fadeth not away. It's precise and it has certain knowledge. So the only thing better, there is nothing better than, than this treasure of, of true knowledge that is complete. Jesus houses all of this understanding and wisdom and how to use that knowledge to enjoy absolute certainty in the face of a world that seeks to hide and prevent the truth from deceiving us. So let's see if we can make it through four and five a bit here before we run out of time. So next week's lesson is going to get into more details about the threat of being deceived, but we start seeing some warnings here in verse four. Now I say this, the things written kind of in one through three Uh, show them as the source of true knowledge and wisdom of God and his plans. Jesus is the storehouse of truth. They did not nor do not need to look elsewhere. And then we have this warning about with pervasive words. There were those trying to deceive them regarding another source of knowledge. They were persuasive. Um, It's actually from a compound Greek word. We're going to skip some of that, this idea of persuasive. And if you think about it, um, this has been a particular skill and hobby of the Greeks for a long time by the time we get to the first century. Uh, Think of a little episode back in Acts 17. What happened in Acts 17? Kids sing time. Where was Paul in Acts 17? Mars Hill. And Paul was there with 
very persuasive words. They didn't want to listen. They refused to be persuaded. In this case here, Paul is saying, don't allow this type of speech to destroy your faith and lead you to error. Rather, remain persuaded by the truth in Christ and His all-sufficient Word. And remember that His Word provides complete knowledge with complete certainty. I think we would all agree that in our day and time, we're pretty much plagued with many who would try to destroy Christianity um, with what they would consider to be persuasive words, um, all forms of uh, lies and other things that people try to use. And in a way, even though Paul had never been there and was not with them, thanks to the Holy Spirit, Paul's even with us today. He's giving us these same lessons, and this has been preserved for us. I think there's a really good reason that we have this particular letter, um, especially when we look around today. It's, it's quite easy to apply the same ideas of warnings of, of false teaching, false application, and false wisdom. All right, so Paul is rejoicing in the good discipline or order of their steadfastness, their firmness of their faith in Christ, and he's both complimenting and exhorting them as he assures them of his confidence in him, and he did not let his confidence in them prevent him from warning them of being led astray, okay? Just because he had confidence, it's that whole you got to have both sides. Just because I have confidence in them doesn't mean I'm not going to still warn them. Again, I don't know why. Maybe it's because I was there most of the day yesterday. It reminded me of the kids on the robotics team. The ones that are using the metal chop saw have been trained to know how to use the metal chop saw. You know what they still hear every time they go use the metal chop saw? Hey, be careful. Make sure you do this. Make sure you do that. Make sure everybody in the room has safety glasses on even though they're supposed to. It's your job to double check, right? Not that we threw a piece of metal through a plate glass window last year, but they still hear the lesson. I have confidence in them using it, which is why I let them use it. They still get the warning. Oh, we were so dangerously close to actually finishing. I'm going to let Bill pick up there next week. We're almost done. So we, we didn't quite get all the way to verse 7, but we're right down there in that verse 6, verse 7 range. So we'll pick up there next week. I appreciate your attention and your good comments and for allowing me to muddle through presenting someone else's lesson. So hope you have a good rest of the day. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.